Today we're wrapping up our Big Life series, trying to close the gap between the life we know God's called us to, that Jesus characterized as abundant life to the full, in line with God's powerful work of transforming us and using us to transform lives and the world around us. The gap between that vision and the day-to-day lives we live at the heart of which are three resources, three things that every day we choose how we're gonna use them, our time, our talents, and our treasures. One of our core values is generosity. And in the three years we've existed as a church, this is the first series I've actually done on generosity. You know that there are only 500 verses in the Bible about faith, and there are only roughly 500 verses about prayer, but there are 2,000 verses about money, because money is not just about money, right? Jesus put it this way, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Money's about your heart, and also money is about ministry. My goal has been for many of you to recognize how blessed you are, that we've confused wants and needs as a culture, and my goal has been to help you see you have a lot more margin than you realize but also to help you understand that compared to the rest of the world around us, most of us, even those of us that are well below what we would consider is reasonable income to live in this part of the world, and I'm not saying it isn't hard, but compared to the rest of the world, we are the wealthy. We are the resource. But I was gently reminded this week that there are some who, the hardship of listening to a series like this is because you're, having a real hard time. And I want to say to those of you that if the room was full of people in your situation, I would still teach about generosity. Because whether we're in a position of great need or great abundance, God still wants us to learn to be his hands and feet. And all of us can live that big life. More importantly, it's important when we're in our situation of greatest need to have our hearts retuned so that as God begins to put things in our hands, we start making the right decisions instead of falling into the traps that so many fall into. All of us can live the big life. It's not just about money. It's about time, talents, and treasures. It's not just about how much. It's about what we're doing with what we have. I'm remembering Jesus' observations about the widow who gave so much by giving just her widow's might because out of her poverty, she gave back to God. And he blessed that more than those that could have given so much more. It's not just about obligation, but it's about heart and life and transformation. Some of the most generous people I have ever met are also some of the most needy people. People in other countries, third world countries I've been in, who would be shocked at what you and I spend on one meal. And yet, not even knowing that level of abundance, just give out of who they are. And so this is about spiritual formation. And I want to be clear about that. It's about being obedient to God, but it's also about changing our hearts and being transformed to who God wants us to be. And we talked about three principles, contentment, trusting in God, seeking godliness as gain. Every person in this room, no matter what your standard of life, can pursue that. And perhaps God's waiting for that before he allows you to take another step. Contentment. We talked about stewardship. And stewardship isn't just about my stuff. It's about me taking up my cross daily 
and recognizing that I no longer live, Christ lives in me. It's about me giving God full ownership of who I am, not just what I have. All of us can do that and need to do it. And then it's about generosity. I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Corinth was one of the most uh, resourced churches. There was great wealth there. And it's interesting that of all the churches that Paul writes to, Corinth is the one with most of the problems. Paul actually spends two whole chapters in his second letter to the church at Corinth dealing with giving. But in helping them understand their responsibility, he tells them about one of the poorest churches. And that's the church at Macedonia. Let's read, beginning at verse 1. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. What an interesting contrast between one city that Paul describes as being in severe trials and extreme poverty, and yet they participate. Let me tell you what this giving project was about. Paul was trying to get all of the churches that were part of his various missions efforts, mostly Gentile believers, to contribute to the great needs of the Jerusalem church because of famine and persecution. There were many who were destitute when the Macedonians, who had the least to give, heard about the opportunity. They were the first and most eager to respond. Notice the play on words here. From severe trials, they respond with overflowing joy. They have extreme poverty, yet they respond with rich generosity. I love that. I love that Paul says that there can be joy and richness in the most difficult and most impoverished circumstances. It's all about our heart. That's what we see in Macedonia. And then in Corinth, in verse 6, what we see is that the Corinthians started out big. They said, oh, we're going to help. But then they didn't follow through. So those who were the most needy, They not only gave what they were able, but they gave beyond what they were able to give. And the Corinthians, who were able to do so much, verbalized that they'd help. But like so often happens with those of us that are blessed with resources, they got distracted. So what does Paul say to them? Look at verse 7 again. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge and in complete earnestness and in your love for us. So in other words, they have a lot of their spiritual act together. But there's one area they don't have together. And he says, in the same way you excel in all of these spiritual disciplines, you need to also excel in the grace of giving. 
we're going to work off of that phrase, excelling in the grace of giving. Some of us would fit in more with the Macedonian church. Others perhaps with the church at Corinth or somewhere in between. All of us called to excel in the grace or the ministry of giving. I want to use that phrase as a way for us to think of what giving in the New Testament was about. We're going to contrast the practices of giving in the Old Testament under the law and the principles of giving that are taught in the New Testament under grace. Under the law, I have to give. Under grace, I get to give. Under the law, I give and then expect to receive from God in return. Under grace, I give because God's already given to me abundantly and beyond all that I could ask. In the law, I give out of obligation. Under grace, I give out of love and passion and gratitude. Under the law, my giving is measured. Under grace, my giving is to be abundant and radically generous. In the Old Testament, there were actually four types of giving, and I want to take those and draw four principles about giving. Now, the practices of giving in the Old Testament are, I don't believe, required of us today, but the principles do move forward and are actually repeated in the New Testament. So let's look at the four types of giving and the principles we can glean from them. The first practice was tithing, and the principle that comes from that is to give as a discipline. We need to give regularly and routinely. Let me just ask a question. How many of you um, pay careful attention to your credit scores? I, I do. How many of you carry a mortgage or pay rent? Sure, the, the, the majority of us do. How many of you pay it on time routinely? Yeah, of course you do, because you know the importance of it. And so because it's an obligation, you are disciplined in that giving. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, let's say this together. Now, about the collection for God's people, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. We see several principles here that match the concept of tithe because it was a 10% you gave according to your ability. So someone that made a great amount, 10%, meant that they gave technically more, but not more spiritually. Those who made very small and tithed were equally generous. We give according to our ability. We also give in a planned and regular way. Here's a question to answer in terms of whether you are a disciplined giver. Do you only give when you show up for church? Do you only pay for services rendered? <laughs> or do you understand that giving is a discipline that needs to happen routinely? And that's for your good, but also for the good of the church. So we give out of discipline, but also the whole notion of the first day takes us to the second practice in the Old Testament, and that's the practice of first fruits. First fruits meant that God not only gets his share, but he gets it first. It comes off the top, and it's gross, not net, in the Old Testament. Before government gets their share, before my kids, my home, my car get their share, 
God gets it first. Here's a question that I want to ask you to see if you're following that principle. Do you pay all your bills first and then decide if you have enough money to give God? When we get to the bottom, we know that what's left is not what God deserves. And for some of us, there's nothing ever left. That's why the principle of first fruits, and that's what Paul is trying to get the church at Corinth in the habit of thinking. The third practice in the Old Testament were offerings. There was tithe, but then there were offerings. The principle there is giving extra. The Jewish people did not just give a tenth. That went directly to the care of the temple and for the care of the priests and their families. The tithe always went to what the prophets referred to as the storehouse, which would be the church. But beyond that, there was giving to other opportunities over and above. We see in Acts chapter 4 that no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. This is not just a measured portion. This is a recognition that it's all available. And if there's a need, I'm going to use it. I'm going to give extra. There was a fourth type of giving in the Old Testament, and that was alms. Alms are about giving to needs. Tithing is communal giving. Offering is people giving together to a cause that God puts in front of them. Alms is personal giving. It's seeing needs around you and being generous, whether it's helping the person across the street pay for their heating bill because it's about to get shut off seeing a need of someone and just saying, let me take care of that. It's the way that we respond to the individual needs around us and just share, share out of what we have right then, right there. Next 4 goes on and says, because of the way the early church gave, there were no needy persons among them. So let me be clear. The principles of those four disciplines carry well into the grace of giving from the law of giving. The motivation's different now, but the result, in fact, ought to be greater because now it's not about measured giving or obligation. It's about overflowing gratitude and it's about radical generosity. So those four principles ought to show up in how you give. Now, let's go back to 2 Corinthians uh, where Paul continues to talk about giving with the church at Corinth. That's chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And I'm going to read this passage as a way of pointing out four attitudes about giving from the New Testament. Verse 6. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. For each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. That's the law of giving. We're talking about the grace of giving, not out of compulsion. It ought to come out of your heart. For God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower... And bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. 
And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God because of the service by which you have proved yourself Men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. Now, I'm not going to do a verse by verse of this, but I just want to use this as a bouncing point and refer back to all that we've talked about as we've looked at all sorts of New Testament teachings, including those of Jesus himself, and I want to list quickly four attitudes about giving that are taught in the New Testament. The first is that we are to give sacrificially. We're to give sacrificially. Macedonia gave not just what they were able, but above and beyond what they were able. And, and we see that also in this encouragement to Corinth. Give abundantly because the one who gives you, the more he gives you, the more abundantly you can give. How much does a Christian give? How much is it appropriate for you to give? I, I'm not gonna answer that for you. I wish I could say give the church this much, give others this much, but it's not how it works. God has to work with you in your spirit about it. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, said this about giving. I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I am afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same incomes as our own, we are probably giving way too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditures excludes them. So how do I know that I'm giving sacrificially? Let me ask you some questions. Do you spend more on vacation than you've given to God this year? How much did you spend on golf, recreation, and the like compared to what you gave the Lord? Do you spend more on gym, exercise, hairstyling, coloring, makeup, clothing, personal appearance than you've given to the Lord? Somebody saying, well, don't you know my body's a temple? I need to care for the temple. If you're spending more on your temple than you're giving to God, your body's not a temple. It's an idol. Ooh! <laughs> Number four. Don't often get those moans. That's good. Work for those. Have you renovated a section of your home just because it was outdated? Have you upgraded your car because it was a couple of years old and not increased your giving or aren't giving at a level that matches those expenditures? Now, I want to be careful, the Bible doesn't prohibit luxuries, but God has to come first. And if he's not first, then those other things are your idols. We are called to give sacrificially. Second, we are called to give consistently, regularly, as Paul taught. 
Third, we are to give compassionately, knowing that God is going to use what we're giving to bless others. And then fourth, we're to give joyfully. God loves a cheerful giver. Paul points out that the result of giving is worship. Not only is giving itself worship, but when we give right, it causes other people to worship. Not just when we give our resource, but when we give our time and our abilities. Peter says, if you live such good lives before men, out of sacrifice, devoting your time and talents and your resources for the kingdom, you live those good lives in front of people, even they will glorify your Father in heaven. So giving's about worship. It's not just an act of worship, it produces other worshipers as they see God's generosity through us. So, four principles and four attitudes, and now four suggestions. What are some ways we can begin taking some steps into this grace of giving? First, I want to suggest that you take a personal inventory of your life, not just about your possessions, I mean about your time. I suggested our second week in this series that some of you do a 15-minute increment survey of how you're using your week. I'm curious, did anybody do that? See, that's good. That's, that's good. Thank you for following through on that. Okay, I'll admit I didn't do it either. <laughs> but I've been busy. Oh, that's the problem. We've got to break out of our busyness. Take an inventory. How are you spending your time? What would happen if you freed up half of the time you spend watching television every week? Gaming online, managing our Facebook account. Whatever your choice of media or amusement is, what would happen if you could just free up half of that time and use it for the kingdom? And go sit with somebody across the street or in the neighborhood or in the apartment building that's all alone and really could use somebody just to say, I love you and God loves you. What would happen if you just freed up time? I'm going to tell you, no matter where you're at in your checking account, we all have the same amount of time. You're as wealthy in time as the person sitting next to you. You could use that to bless somebody. You could use that to serve. So take an inventory of your time, your abilities, what skills are you using for everything else except making a difference in lives around you and for the kingdom of God? And yes, where is your money going? Take an inventory so that you really see where it is. Why should you do that? Because you're a steward, not an owner. And you're going to have to give account for it anyway someday. Why not take account of it now so you make sure you're using it well? After you do that, second, trim excess from your life. Find the margins that are there. And I'm going to tell you, all of us have them in some area related to our time, talents, and treasures. We have margins. Trim wants discretionary expenditure of those things when God could use them and turn them into first fruits. One way that we're tightening, trying to trim the excess, is that as a family in the next week or two, we're actually abandoning cable television. We're going just with internet access. We're going to cut our entertainment budget by two-thirds by doing that, and we'll be able to redirect that money into more godly purposes. And that's just one of many steps that God's been challenging me, even as I try to get better at this grace of giving. 
Trim the excess from your life. And then, third, target people and godly causes. With that excess, which you will find if you're looking for it, ask yourself, who can I bless? Who right around me? Wouldn't it be awesome to take some of that time I'm using just for amusement and watch the kids of the couple that I know hasn't had a time out to themselves in months? Why don't I watch the kids for them that night so that I'm blessing them? That's a kingdom purpose, you see. We can find all sorts of ways to target people right around you and target godly causes with your time, with your abilities. There's so much that could be done if some of you were willing to take what you're paid to do and use it to help an organization in town, help students in town. Do you know how many kids in Straight Up at Straight Ahead are looking for somebody with life skills to come alongside them? So many ways you could touch lives just by taking what you've learned, the abilities you have, and passing it on to others. Targeting your money for eternal purposes. Target people in godly causes. And the fourth thing is my real challenge to you as we wrap here. Test God by radical generosity. Test God by radical generosity. One final principle that I think carries from the Old Testament can be seen in Malachi chapter 3. I'm going to ask you to turn there with me. It's one of the minor prophets at the end of the Old Testament. Go to the beginning of Matthew and turn left just a few pages and you'll find Malachi. Malachi chapter 3. I'm going to begin reading at verse 6. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God, and yet you rob me? But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord God Almighty. This is the only area in Scripture where God actually directly challenges His children to test Him in it. Now, we test God in all sorts of ways, don't we? We test His patience every day. We test his grace all the time. And when's the last time you tested his promises about your generosity? Because that's the one he challenges you to test him on. It's interesting that from his perspective, Israel not giving is not just a failure, it's robbing. In other words, if you're using money that's intended for God in any other way, you're robbing God. And he says, give me the full tithe. In other words, give everything that you know I've called you to. And test me in this and see if I will not in return abundantly bless you. Because ultimately, 
where you're cared for is not in what you have, but in the one who gives it. And there's plenty more where it comes from. Test me in this. What would it look like for you to really put your life, your security, your future to the test by letting go of the things you're holding on to that actually belong to God and giving them to him completely? God is talking about the tithe in this setting, but the principle he's talking about here predates the law. He says the problem has existed since your forefathers. Long before Moses gave the law, the children of Israel struggled with giving God his. The problem existed before the law, and it continues after the law, and we're proof of it every single day. We're robbing God. And then God says, what's holding back from me blessing your life, not necessarily in the terms and ways that we would define blessing, but in exactly the way we need and in exactly the way God intends to bless us, what's keeping him from bringing that full blessing is that rather than holding on to him, we're holding on to what he's given us. And he says, the only way you really understand what I can do for you is to let go of that because I can't fill your arms with my blessings when you're holding on to the stuff when you're holding on to your time, when you're holding on to your abilities and squandering them for things that will die with you. Test me in this. And that's exactly what Paul promises in the passage that we were dealing with at the beginning today. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Let's say this as we finish. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. You will be rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. I love the the extreme nature of this. He speaks in totalities. All grace abound. Having all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. You will be rich in every way that you can be generous on every occasion. This is the big life. It's never about you. It never was about you. And nothing you own or hold has ever been about you or for you. It's all about pouring it out so that you can become a conduit for God's greater blessing to continue to pour through you into the world around you. That's the big life we're called to, and that's the life that changes the world. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the privilege of teaching on this subject. Thank you for the grace given me by the congregation in addressing what can be a very difficult subject. My earnest prayer, Father, is that we've done justice that we haven't manipulated Scripture, but we've represented what you want us to be, that you're fighting for our heart, and you want to use us and everything you give us for your glory, for the good of others. And in doing that, and in doing that alone, we attain the full blessing in every way, in all things, at all times, and in all circumstances. We're able to be generous, and we're able to do good for the kingdom. Father, inspire us with that thought. Transform us. I am caught with the picture of what could happen if just this group of people in this single room in this city became radically generous for the kingdom. I'm just caught with what that would look like and how amazing it would be to be a part of it. In Jesus' name, amen.